On the latest Bill Kelly Show podcast, my name's Rick Samprin. A health assessment has been completed after the recent demolition of a Hamilton plant, and an analysis of that data shows it's unlikely that the event will result in any adverse long-term health outcomes. A nonprofit organization called Stem Cell Club is working to recruit Canadians as stem cell donors, and we chat with a stem cell recipient. And Donald Trump's ambassador to the EU has told U.S. House impeachment investigators that Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani was pushing a quid pro quo with Ukraine. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton has completed its testing on samples from a massive dust cloud that floated over Hamilton's east end back in September, minutes after the demolition of an old steel mill. In a statement, the group that included the Associate Medical Officer for Health, a director from the Healthy Environments Division, and a manager from the Health Hazards and Vector Borne Diseases Program, said the demolition is, quote, unlikely to result in any adverse long-term health outcomes. A toxicologist employed by Public Health Services says samples from the community were consistent with ordinary minerals and metals found in a simple dirt sample with particle sizes of about 20 to 40 microns. Well, let's bring in our first guest on this topic because there's an important discussion to be had tonight as well. Uh, her name is Narendra Dan, Ward 3 Councillor for the City of Hamilton, and joins us now. Narendra, how are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Um, well, let's talk about, uh, I guess, this being a sigh of relief that these particles are not, or at least unlikely, to harm us. Absolutely. Um, I think the biggest concern for everybody who saw the dust plume go up into the air was, my goodness, what is in that black dust? And so the fact that uh, the toxicologist reports and public health have confirmed that there's no long-term health impacts, I think that will help residents rest with a little bit more uh, ease. But that said, I had a really great conversation with our public health team yesterday morning as they were giving me the high-level summary on, on the outcomes of the investigation, particularly when it relates to health. And that was the fact that so many residents who live in the adjacent area commented on the fact that they've got a cumulative um, impact, right? They live in the industrial north end. Um, they've been exposed to all kinds of things for a long time. And so, you know, their question is, if I, if my baseline is different than a healthy baseline that isn't exposed to these kinds of toxins on a regular basis, then what about me? And I'm hoping that that question will also be answered tonight from a health perspective. So regarding tonight, there is a public meeting being held, correct? Yes, absolutely. So today at 6 o'clock, doors are going to open. All members of the public are welcome. Um, The meeting starts formally at 6.30 and goes until 8.30. We've got representatives from public health, the ministry. We've got uh, staff team members from building, uh, as there's questions about, you know, the city's permitting process for demolitions. We've got staff from planning, but we've also got Delson AIM coming as well. And fundamentally, uh, to ask the question and answer the question, uh, what happened and why Why did that structure get taken down in the way that it did when it seemed like so many other pieces of the facility were taken down and dismantled piece by piece? And then for some reason, this portion was hauled down. And what I know from previous workers from the specialty bar is that that dust collector um, used to be operated in a very uh, kind of pristine way in the sense that they, they used to do very high environmental standards of cleaning on a weekly basis when the dust collector, dust collector was running. Do we, so some of the workers who live in the adjacent neighborhood, uh, I anticipate they'll be coming as well to ask those questions in terms of, you know, did you know 
what it was previously operated for and what potentially was in there. Because as workers, they were told to make sure they were completely sealed off as they were working in there and cleaning up. And tonight's public meeting is being held at the Cotton Factory, correct? That's right. It's at 270 Sherman Avenue North. So do we expect to find out why this happened? I mean, that's the ultimate question, right? Absolutely. And so I was on the phone with Delson Ames representatives yesterday just to go over, you know, here are the questions that the, the counselor's office has received over the course of the last month so that they can be prepared to answer the question. And I've encouraged them to be 100% accountable to the question and be transparent. And uh, they've reassured me that they will, that they're prepared to answer any tough question that comes forward. But for them, um, they want to be able to have the moment to also explain what happened, why it went down the way that it did. Besides the potential health impacts, I think one of the big concerns from the community was the lack of notification. It caught everyone by surprise, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there are protocols around what you're supposed to do when you're bringing down a structure like that in terms of dust mitigation and that kind of thing. And I believe that courtesy is is, is uh, the, the least we, we can expect in terms of residents uh, just to be aware that there might be some excessive noise or, you know, that we're, we're pursuing a demolition from this time to this time. Here are some precautionary measures you can take. Uh, make sure your windows are closed, that kind of thing. So the other major set of questions that I'm hoping to explore with everybody tomorrow, uh, tonight is how do we prevent this from happening forward? What are the lessons we've learned? What has AIM Delson learned? And what has the city learned in terms of um, this, this incident and how we might improve our processes moving forward and what we want to expect from uh, folks who are choosing to do demolition of industrial buildings moving forward. Last question for you. Are there any repercussions to come out of this? Well, we'll see. I, I'm not sure if the ministry is prepared to go public with what the outcomes of their investigations are. And as you know, part of their work was to investigate what happened and uh, what the potential impact is, not only on human health, but also from an environmental perspective. And then there's also the Ministry of Labor and the Ministry of Health. And from a worker's perspective, the folks who are on the demolition site, I'm not clear what the violations were. And I'm at this point not clear what what the enforcement's going to be. Well, we'll hopefully begin to find out uh, tonight in the days and, and weeks ahead. Uh, Narendra Dan, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Take care, Rick. Narendra Dan, Ward 3 Councillor for the City of Hamilton, talking about uh, tonight's uh, public uh, information session at the Cotton Factory. Doors open at 6. The formal proceedings will begin at 6.30. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tonight, Hamiltonians are going to receive the full assessment of the black dust cloud that was released from uh, the demolition off Sherman Avenue, the old Hamilton Specialty Bar uh, facility. Ward 3 Councillor Narendra Nan is hosting the community info session at the Cotton Factory. Doors open at 6. It will begin at 6.30. Uh, and basically, what was found after a uh, an analysis of the material that was um, unleashed in the community uh, is unlikely to result in any adverse long-term health outcomes. One of the individuals behind that finding is Dr. Bart Harvey, Associate Medical Officer of Health, and he joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Dr. Harvey, how are you this morning? I'm good, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. So, what, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What exactly was found in this material? Uh, so the major findings were uh, minerals, silica, and um, a collection of some metals. So not dangerous at all, at least uh, for the short term, correct? Well, let me backtrack a little bit. So there were 
two sites. The Ministry of the Environment had staff on scene within the hour of the demolition occurring on September 30th. And because of their uh, reasonable suspicion that uh, part of this plume would have gone beyond the property line of the uh, demolition site, uh, they did uh, collection samples in on the site itself uh, where the demolition took place. And that was really to give them, as I understand it, to give them a good sense of what kinds of materials would be expected were on the site and then could be looked for in the community. Because as I understand it, one of their major mandates is to be able to document whether, in fact, um, as one of the members of the Ministry of the Environment described it, they said, well, essentially what this was was a spill. Um, we think of spills usually as liquids, but this one was really a, a dust spill, that dust from the site had was suspected of having spilled out into the community. So the second place that they did sampling was uh, into the community just beyond where the kind of downwind site would be. And they were able to take uh, several um, dust samples from those locations, and then they submit them to their lab for testing. Um, I guess one of the observations that they shared with us was when they went to the community to get dust samples, A, there were dust samples, but B, they were relatively modest, even small in size. So the amount of sample material that was available to them, um, despite looking in multiple places immediately kind of downwind and just outside the property, there were samples, but they were modest in size. Um, at the site itself, there was lots of sample and lots of material, so a full bank of testing could be done on the materials in the, in the site. Um, so they had to make a decision uh, because of the, the modest size of samples that they had from the community, uh, as I understand it, and it makes sense to me, they had to make strategic decisions on what are we going to test for because we're only going to have finite samples that we can prepare and submit for testing. And so their priority was uh, the kind of minerals, uh, silica, metals, um, and part of that was they need to be able to look at the profile of what they're seeing in the community samples and compare it to the profile of the test results from the on-site sample so that they can gather as conclusive evidence as possible that, in fact, you know, a, this plume did breach the demolition site and entered the community. So um, what that meant was that there were certain tests that in an ideal world they would love to do, but the reality was they had finite materials so coming back to your original question, on site, the other, two, the other three things that were found in the, um, the copious samples that were available at the demolition site was there was dioxin, there were furans, and there were benzoapyrenes. Uh, the first two were to the measure of, I think it was 300 parts per trillion was the concentration of those right on the demolition site. And for the benzoapyrene, it was 30 parts per billion uh, on site. So we knew that those three things were certainly on the site, and we reasonably expected that they would be carried uh, with the dust, like, just like the minerals, the silica, and the metals had as well. Um, and so working with our toxicologists, you know, the question we had was, because the Ministry of the Environment 
didn't have enough community sample to actually test for those three things in the community sample. So what we were left with is based on what we know about the concentrations of the metal seen on site and in the community, could we make a reasonable estimate as to what would be the concentrations that we would expect in the community samples if we'd been able to measure them um, of dioxin furans and, and benzoapyrene? And because the metal concentration in the community was about one-tenth in those samples as to what was found on site, we used that as a reasonable estimate as to what would be the concentration. So essentially, in the community, we would expect about one-tenth of the concentration of the dioxinefurines and benzoapyrenes having gotten to the community. And when the toxicologist did the assessment of if someone was exposed to that level of concentration of those three things for the time that we would expect the plume to have been exposed to them, you know, what would those levels be and how would they compare to current environmental standards? Um, and the assessment was that the concentrations as a result of this plume would have been well below uh, the environmental standards for exposure to those three. And, and hence, we've, you know, drawn the conclusion that, um, you know, that the exposure to anyone in the community as a result of this plume would not be expected to, to result in, um, you know, in, in ill health effects. It's a great explanation of of how uh, it was all analyzed and and uh, you know the the um, uh, I guess baseline uh, materials that you had to work with on the site and you know what was exposed in the community. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left with uh, Dr. Barn Harvey. I, I want to ask you one of the concerns, and it was just a few weeks ago, was that you know why is it taking so long to get the information uh, about what was in the dust? Why does this take so long? So that's a question, Rick, that I, I can't answer. I, I'm uh, Our colleagues at the Ministry of the Environment were the ones that collected the samples. It's their lab that has the expertise to do the processing. Um, you know, I think, you know, the bottom line is that, that all things take time. I have no idea kind of what other things they had. There will be my understanding, and it's, it's my confident understanding, uh, that at tonight's meeting, there will be at least one and I think even two representatives from the Ministry of the Environment. So certainly they could be asked at that meeting to, and I, I won't be surprised if they're asked that question at the community meeting. And then certainly there'll be other representatives beyond health that'll be at the meeting, like our buildings department will be, uh, will be represented there as well. I guess the one other thing I'd like to highlight, Rick, is the other thing that the, the analysis showed was that Generally, this dust cloud was made up of, quote-unquote, big particles. Now, they're microns in size. So for you and I, we'd say, those are really small. The, the important part is that these particles were larger than the particles that have the ability to get right down into the lungs. So these are big enough that, in fact, even if somebody um, breathed them in or got in contact with them, these particles are so large that they would get caught up in the, the mucus lining of the nose and the throat and essentially would be sneezed out or coughed out. So it's another aspect that makes us more confident that really that they're, you know, that this event, thankfully, doesn't appear to, you know, have caused 
or would result in any health effects because, again, probably there may have been people that might have been close by that um, for the hour, a couple of hours afterwards, if they sneezed or coughed, um, they might have noticed that, that their phlegm was a little bit darker, um, which would be like if somebody spent the day gardening, um, they would notice the same thing because the, the dirt particles get caught up in our nose, et cetera, and then when we sneeze them out or cough them out, we can see that kind of tinging. Right, and, 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 we get and we get concerned. And we get concerned. Right, and we get concerned when we see stuff that we're not normally used to seeing. We have to cut it off there because we're right up against uh, our time limit here. Dr. Harvey, appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Rick. Nice talking with you. Have a good one. Uh, community meeting tonight, 6 o'clock, Cotton Factory. Be there to uh, discuss and learn more about the dust cloud in uh, Sherman Avenue uh, area. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A nonprofit organization called Stem Cell Club is working to recruit Canadians as stem cell donors. Now, the director says that many patients with blood cancers and other blood diseases need a stem cell transplant as part of their treatment. And the majority of these patients don't have a matching donor available within their family and require an unrelated donor. So Stem Cell Club works to improve the odds that a patient in need will find a suitable matching donor by recruiting over 5,000 Canadians as potential stem cell donors each year. Now, Canadians register donors by providing informed consent to participate and a cheek swab for DNA typing. That's so they can obviously find matches. So today, Stem Cell Club, and throughout the month, in fact, is leading a Get Swabbed campaign running 27 stem cell drives at 18 university campuses in six provinces with the aim of, of course, registering thousands of Canadians as donors. Now, the team is at McMaster University. It's running a drive as part of this campaign from 4 p.m. till 10 p.m. at the David Braley Athletic Center. Erin Morrison is joining us in studio. She underwent a stem cell transplant for aplastic anemia and is now back on campus studying nursing. Thanks for joining us in studio today. Thank you for having me. This is obviously an important topic for you. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we'll start with day one of your diagnosis. You are told that you have a very serious uh, illness. Mm-hmm. So what happened? Um, well, there was a long period of time before I was diagnosed that I didn't really understand what was why I wasn't able to function, okay. what was going on. So what was going on? Like, wh- What did you notice? Oh, I, there was about two years of a gradual decline in my functioning. It first uh, started off with my cognitive functioning. I wasn't able to focus. I couldn't remember things well. I was having difficulty finding words, completing sentences. And I was in school at the time uh, at OCAD. And this was when I was writing a lot of essays and really working on articulating myself and right. my critical thinking. And I just was really struggling with that which was unusual. Then over some more time, I noticed I was sick all of the winter. I'd have very uh, little energy. Mm -hmm. I'd easily bruise and have, uh, the more physical symptoms came out um, gradually, maybe in the the second year. Um, The sickness, the fatigue, the bruising. Um, I could sleep for three to four days. Wow. um, Straight. Wow. And so, w- were you visiting doctors all along? No. Okay. So, I think this is really common for people to do is when they're experiencing, you know, um, I don't know, that before they before they have a diagnosis, before they see a doctor, they're 
they'll blame themselves. Mm-hmm. More often than not, we make excuses. Oh, yeah, it's probably just so this. For right? like this whole time I went, like, you know, I've been manifesting this in poor lifestyle choices as a student. Like I'm always staying up late and maybe my diet isn't great. Right. And I don't go to the gym. Um, but it got to a point where uh, I really couldn't explain for why I was experiencing, like, why I was feeling the way I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got to a point where um, I noticed some bleeding on, or petechiae, it's called, just internal bleeding and bruising on one wrist. And I woke up the next day and it was on the ne- other. So I took pictures and I sent it to my mom hmm. uh, through a text. I was living on my own at the time mm-hmm. and I really had isolated myself. So my parents were pretty frustrated with me that <laughs> that I <laughs> hadn't reached out sooner. <laughs> but um, I guess I was embarrassed. And I wasn't, I just didn't know. Um, it didn't never occurred to me that it could be physical. Right. When I sent her the pictures, she's a family doctor, and immediately she said, we're going to the hospital, like, now. Right. And that's when I got the diagnosis. Um, I When I was in the most critical condition, I think had I waited any longer, I wouldn't, it, I wouldn't have received a diagnosis. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's pretty scary. So you go to the hospital, and then you find out? I have a plastic idiopathic, very severe aplastic anemia. And you're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I said, am I going home uh, tonight? Because my brother's wedding was in five days. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I needed to, you know, get ready, get my, pick up my dress. Um, It was like a pretty important time in our family's life. And then he said, you're not going home um, because you could die. So, and I'm paraphrasing that, but that was the gist of it. It was the gist of it. Uh, it was really hard to understand. Um, aplastic anemia is when uh, it's a it, it's an autoimmune disorder where your bone marrow fails to produce the the cells that you need in your blood to mm-hmm. survive. Okay. So what's common is a uh, is anemia, which is a red blood cell deficiency. Aplastic anemia is when your red cells are depleted, um, your platelets, which are the clotting factors of the blood, those become also depleted. They start to die off. And then your white cells, which are your immune system. So all of the factors of your blood just stop regenerating. And mm-hmm. they it, slowly over time, your blood counts drop and uh, your body o- will adapt to that for a certain amount of time. But... Once the levels drop to a a certain low, it kind of becomes like you're just not functional. So at that's all. where you were. Yes, and I think with most aplastic anemics, uh, they find out their diagnosis this way. It's never early, right? Because it could always be something else right. until it's so low that there's that's they get that diagnosis and they need treatment very quickly. So you get the diagnosis, you you find out you have this uh, this uh, disease and now you have to get treatment. So what happens next? Um, well, that was another obstacle for my family because um, I had the diagnosis and the next step would be to get a bone marrow transplant. There really is no cure for aplastic anemia besides a bone marrow or stem cell transplant. Um, So until I would be able to get the transplant, I would be receiving uh, top-ups of blood products. So I'd go in regularly to the hospital and get Mm -hmm. uh, red blood cells, 
platelets just so that I could kind of go through my day. Right. Um, it's like getting an oil, an oil change. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, it felt great because there's one, when you have normal blood cells, like when you have normal red count, uh, you have a lot of oxygen. I felt really uh, energetic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I forgot what that felt like. Yeah. But um, at that point, it was now I needed to find a donor uh, to have to be able to get a bone marrow transplant. Mm-hmm. And if you have a sibling, a sibling can be uh, a 25 percent chance of being a match but or any each of your siblings. But if if they're not a match, uh, then you'd have to go to the world registry and find a match anywhere in the world. So I guess lucky for you, you had a match within your family. You didn't have to go into the world registry. Yeah. Very soon my brother was tested and. So did your whole family get tested? Like, was it a mad rush to say, hey, we got to help Aaron here? um, No, it doesn't really work like that. (laughs) Um, It's a bit more complicated and there are a lot of factors that come into play when uh, you're, you can, are a potential stem cell match for someone. And it's the fact that my brother was, I was incredibly lucky um, because I only have one brother. Now, had we, we found out that he was my match and then were able to proceed with treatment in a lot more timely of a fashion. Mm-hmm. But I think most people um, don't have that luxury and opportunity. Um, when you go out to the registry, there's so, there's not that many people who have gotten swabbed yet, and so they're not in the pool of potential donors, and even and so you could be waiting for a match for years, for months, years, um, just until someone comes up. But how, you know, how long can you live with your condition until right. um, someone shows up? And the other thing is that it's not about your blood type that matters when you're a stem cell match for someone. A lot of people think I donate blood. So, you know, this is, uh, I, they're helping, which is always helpful. Amazing thing to donate mm-hmm. blood. But in this case. But it's... in this case, uh, you don't have to be the same blood type as somebody right. to be their stem cell match. There are a lot of other um, histocompatibility markers. Um, and it has to do with your uh, your defenses, your immune system, like mm-hmm. genetic markers. So um, to be a match for someone, it's even your ethnicity uh, as it comes into play. And I would have had, there's a lot of Caucasians in the registry, but still even... Uh, the number of Caucasians in the registry is only a fraction of our world population. Right. And, and heredity plays a part in this whole equation too, right? Um, yes. And I think ethnicity, um, ethnic backgrounds in the registry currently are dispor- disproportionately low. Right. Uh, I know someone, I, I've reached out to a few organizations as, for volunteer work that are stem cell fundraisers. And um I've met one one guy named Kevin, and he's a Jamaican, and he's still he has been diagnosed with AML leukemia, and he's still waiting, and he's been waiting for a, a, a donor for two years now, mm-hmm. and it's it's very sad. Um, there's less than one percent of Caribbean population in the registry, wow. so I highly highly encourage anybody listening, if you're within the ages of seventeen to thirty five, and if you are anybody and anyone, you should you should get swabbed. Mm-hmm. It's very simple, but especially if you have a unique uh, 
background, a mixed background, especially um, any kind of any kind of ethnic background. Right. I think that's really important. That's very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, today at McMaster University, this um, campaign, Get, Get Swabbed, it's called, is uh, running from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. at the David Bradley Athletic Center. We're speaking with Erin uh, Morrison in studio here. She underwent a stem cell transplant for aplastic anemia and is now back on campus studying nursing. Um, so did they test your brother for a bone marrow transplant as well, or, the, or were they just looking at stem cell transplant? So the difference is bone marrow, it's... They're kind of the same. Um, the thing is that when when you have a bone marrow transplant, you're given bone marrow. <laughs> it's thicker, and it needs to go through a central line, a thicker line. Okay. Um, stem cells can be extracted from the marrow and given as well uh-huh. through your uh, through your um, your just two IVs in your arms. Right. So it sounds um, like a much easier process. And well, collecting stem cells whether it's from the marrow or from um, whether extracted from the bloodstream, it's two different kinds of procedures. <laughs> um, so my <laughs> brother, for example, yeah. um, okay, my brother had marrow extracted um, to give to me and they went, they put him out for this procedure. Uh, they, they put six aspirates into the lower back uh, pelvic bone mm-hmm. and they suction out uh, 1.2 liters of his marrow. Wow. Yeah. So that's a bit more of an invasive procedure. And the next couple weeks, the donor will will be slightly anemic. Um, my brother actually was like pretty incredible. He was walking the next day. He was like really up on his feet. And he even the day of, he said he'd do it again for someone else. Wow. Um, he, he really recovered so quickly. And I, I have heard of a, a few others who have had that procedure and recovered quite quickly with with donating stem cells you have 2 weeks of uh, an injection called nupigen and it stimulates the stem cells to come out of your marrow out of the bones into your bloodstream hmm. so it's it's 2 weeks of preparation and then the extraction of the stem cells is just through two uh just like putting two needles in your arms and right. and getting blood work right right um and so in a sense, it's it's less painful, but you're but it's two weeks of uh, preparation, and it's just I think it depends. So most leukemics are able to receive stem cells, um, and that be adequate for their condition. And I think uh, blood failure cancers can receive stem cells. In my particular condition, aplastic anemia, I had to receive marrow. Right. Mm-hmm. So I got two more questions because we only got a couple more uh, minutes here. Number one, how how did the wedding turn out? Were you able to make it? Oh yeah, I was pumped with two <laughs> units of. <laughs> I was pumped with two units of blood that particular time. They usually are very like uh, they don't give you more than you need, but right. for the wedding, they gave me two units, and I felt like <laughs> so good. Like Wonder Woman, yeah. I danced for the whole time. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it was like, oh, it was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the second question is, uh, and probably what everyone is asking themselves is, how are you doing now? It's a slow recovery. Um, I still, I think my blood counts are slowly going up. Mm-hmm. And you had this procedure in 2017 or 2016. 2016 yeah. So this three years ago. Yeah. Fairly recent. And um, slowly your blood counts uh 
go up when my brother's marrow takes on in my body then it's the numbers just will slowly increase slowly increase so it's it's uh recovery can be a couple years mm-hmm. um i'm still struggling i think with a few things but overall i'm much healthier than i was a handful of years ago yeah. so well the most important thing is you're here yeah uh, you're making a difference you're into nursing which is fantastic you're going to be giving back to people in a healthcare way uh, which is awesome to see your story is amazing and for anyone who is interested in uh, getting swabbed and becoming a stem cell uh, club member or a donor uh, you can go to McMaster University today from 4 p.m. till 10 p.m. it's at the David Bradley Athletic Center and it should be uh, well worth your while yeah I just want to add too is that to become a potential donor is very, very easy. You only have to get a cheek swab. It really requires n- nothing from you. When you're called upon that you may be a match for someone, when they actually call you, that you can make a decision then as well, mm-hmm. whether you want to follow through. So just in case anybody is worried about, you know, they're not good with procedures, they have to work and they wouldn't be able to take the time off to undergo a procedure like that. Um, You're still joining the registry doesn't mean that you are a donor. You're a potential donor and that means you're a potential option to save someone's life. And so I really think, I highly encourage anybody who can to get swabbed. It's a great way to put it. Thanks for joining us today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. Welcome back. This is the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill today. That was the voice of Gordon Sondland denying that in carrying out President Donald Trump's Ukraine policy, that he was engaging in some kind of rogue diplomacy or that he muscled his way into the issue. Impeachment proceedings continuing today. Public portion of that in Washington, D.C. Let's bring in our next guest to talk about what this latest session means. He's a political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, and his name is Barry Kay, and Barry joins us now. Barry, good morning. Hello, Rick. Well, what do you make of uh, the commentary from Mr. Sondland this morning? Uh, Well, this is certainly the most important uh, testimony yet. This is, I guess, the fifth session that they've had of the uh, Impeachment Inquiry Committee, Uh, but this stuff really is explosive. Not that so much of it is brand new. A number of the things that the uh, Ambassador Sondland is suggesting are things that others have said as well. But this is a guy who was not just there as a witness, but was actually part of it. And again, it's although the Trump seems to suggest that everybody who um, says anything he doesn't want to hear is, is a never-Trumper, this is a guy who contributed a million dollars basically to buy an ambassadorship, which is the way they do things uh, in, in, in the States at times. Uh, but, but also who, in fact, uh, you know, has, has been a loyal Republican and a Trump supporter. And I, I mean, I get, I'm sure Trump will do everything he can to discredit him because he does that with everybody. But um, this this is an awkward day for the Trump's, Trump's supporters. Sondland saying that the suggestion that he was engaged in rogue diplomacy is absolutely false. How damaging is his testimony uh, to the, the, the Trump administration and, the, and, and Team Trump? 
Oh, I think this, well, again, it's not that what he's saying is so different from what we've heard from others. It's just that he was very much in the middle of it. And the uh, the Trump people have tried to suggest that unless, that everything's hearsay and that there's no firsthand uh, witnesses. Of course, they, they at the same time, they suppress any evidence from any of the firsthand witnesses that could that could come in. Oh, that this is the most uh, the most damaging yet. It's also though. I mean, Sondland himself um, has has misled, if not uh, deceived, because this isn't the first time he's giving testimony. He's he's been evasive. He's he's given different positions. I'm sure the Republicans will basically now say he's not reliable, just as uh, Michael Cohen wasn't reliable. And we we've been through this so mo- with so many other cases. I do think that part of the um, motivation for Sondland is something that just happened the last few days, which was in fact the um, uh, the, the conviction of um, Roger Stone uh, for lying to Congress and go and uh, presumably being jailed. I mean, he may well be pardoned at some point. I think at some point uh, Trump will try to pardon all sorts of people that are trying to get him off the hook. Uh, but Sondland um, comes across. He's he's basically a businessman. He's uh, run a chain of hotels in the uh, in the uh, Pacific Northwest of the U.S. Um, he comes across as very uh, to me a very credible witness. Um, he's a Republican. He's given money to them, as I say, to to get into all of this. And he's sort of be kind of a dupe. And uh, just as the Trump people seem to be always looking for somebody to uh, fall on their swords to protect the president, and a number of those people, at least six of them, are now in jail. Um, I guess Sondland decided he didn't want to be the seventh, um, and that's part of uh, part of his, his motivation. But he he was there. It wasn't just that he heard somebody else talk about it. He was there in terms of, you know, the, the question of the quid pro quo or the question of extortion or bribery or whatever you want to call it. I guess it, it sounds more distant in Latin than it does in English. But nonetheless, uh, there's plenty of evidence already that uh, these things went on. So Sondland's only confirming that. But uh, the fact that he was involved with it, that he was in, uh, you know, communicated by Giuliani and probably through Trump as well, uh, that Trump was in on this from the very beginning, knew exactly what was going on. Although he's been very careful in trying not to use quotes himself, he always suggests that other people should infer from what he said. But I, I don't think there's any, for anybody who wants to look at this dispassionately, I don't think there's any question that, uh, that Trump not only knew about it, but in fact probably was the instigator for the, all of this in the first place, and certainly with the cooperation of, um, of Giuliani. What it does, though, politically, because at the end of the day, I don't think this is going to, it will lead to an impeachment trial of some sort. I don't know how long that will go on. It probably won't be until the new year. But that, um, that indeed, there's no reason at this point to think that um, the Republican senators are going to break. It would require 20 Republicans to remove him from office, to voting in addition to the Democrats. They would need two-thirds of the Senate. I, I really don't think that's going to happen. But it's embarrassing as hell. It's embarrassing as hell for Trump in his re-election for next November. And frankly, it's embarrassing as hell for the, um, for the Republicans, uh, who look like now increasingly, for again, there's plenty of people who are going to be Republican down the line and pro-Trumpers, and there's people on the other side that are never Trumpers and are Democrats. Uh, but for people, there's, there are some swing voters in the U.S. too. Um, and that indeed, uh, those are votes that the Republicans should be very concerned about, and they're trapped. They're trapped because of the fact that the, the Trump is not prepared to acknowledge that even a little bit that there was something improper. He still argues this is a perfect conversation, and he's not prepared to uh, countenance any Republicans who are prepared to say that indeed this was improper, much less corrupt and, and illegal, which it probably was. Sondland also saying today his testimony has not been perfect. He's not a note taker or a, or a memo writer and uh, is accusing the, the Trump administration of refusing to hand over calendars and phone records, other you know, State Department documents, uh, pointing to that the Trump administration is trying to hide something. Yeah, well, that that's his out in part in terms of the, the changes in the te- He's already changed his testimony once, 
modifying it, but not nearly as much as he's, he seems to be doing at the moment. And again, this is going on at the moment, just before uh, you know, I got the call from you. I would, this is what I was watching. I've still got it on the screen, although the, it's muted now. Uh, so things are breaking even as we, uh, we speak, I'm sure, and we'll know more about this in the hours ahead than we, than we do at, at, at the moment. Uh, but um, this does have implications, not probably for the removal of Trump at the end of a trial. I don't think we're there yet. That would take a really dramatic change in public opinion among Republicans. And most Republicans just seem to be uh, prepared to, to line up with Trump, whatever he says, when he talks about being prepared to shoot somebody on uh, Fifth Avenue, as he did before the campaign, and his supporters wouldn't break. Uh, that's clearly what the, uh, the face of the Republican supporters have been up till now. So I'm not expecting that to happen. But this does have implications, and the Republicans are very awkward, feeling very awkward because they basically have to be all in with Trump, or he's going to denounce them and try to have them primaried and defeated in, uh, in the election campaign, as he's done with some others in the past. We're chatting with uh, Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill, uh, talking about the latest impeachment proceedings going on as we speak. Uh, in Washington, um, how do you how do you feel that Trump and the Trump administration is going to spin today's testimony? Well, the the way they spin everything is that uh, these, he he hardly knows Sondland. He spoke. I mean, there's so many quotes on every. It's all so hypocritical and so silly. People are clearly seeing what they want to see, and frankly, a lot of the problem is just with regard to. Um, I guess the uh, the internet and the fact that with Facebook that there's just so much uh, deceptive behavior, people just line up to the, whether they're watching Fox News or CNN or whatever, just listen to the reports they want to hear. Uh, so I, I'm not sure to what extent it's going to affect uh, public opinion among party loyalists. But there are some people in the middle, and I think that that that's that, and I think Republicans understand they're in a problem. But if they break with Trump, he's going to denounce them. He's already started to do it with with others. I'm sure he will be denouncing Sondland. And the fact is that Sondland has misled in his, in his previous testimony. He's got this excuse to the fact that he was denied records, and maybe that'll, you know, I'm, I'm not at all sure that he's going to be uh, charged in this. We'll see. Anything's possible. But um, it looks like that if he continued to maintain the, the lies and prevarications that seemed, was his original testimony a, a few weeks back, uh, that indeed he was probably heading for um, a, for a perjury trial, and he saw what happened with Roger Stone and others. Stone's not the only one. But um, Manafort, and anyway, there's a number of Trump people. It almost seems that if uh, they aren't crooks, Trump doesn't know them. But in, in, a, in any case, in any case, um, I think he's decided that his best out is to try to come clean as best he can. But his, he doesn't have clean skirts on this either. Interesting to see some of the messaging from the Trump campaign, or at least the re-election campaign. I just saw a TV commercial the other day uh, emphasizing the, pe- the fact that, you know, the economy is as strong as it's ever been. Uh, Trump is uh, making America great again, and the Democrats are focused on impeachment, which is not where the focus should be. So they're, they're playing on the angle of, you know, we're working, whereas the Democrats are just going after, you know, this, uh, this impeachment. They have all along. I mean, the polls still show they're in real trouble. I mean, Trump's never even been close to 50 percent. I don't think he's ever exceeded 47 percent um, uh, in terms of popular support, and he's well below that now. Uh, yeah, but, you know, you, you do what you do. You know, you, 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 you tell the story, and, and the economy is in good shape, uh, by and large. It's not as nearly as strong as he suggested it was going to be, and, indeed, much of the economic strength got started before he became president. But he hasn't screwed it up, and the stock market clearly is going up. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that all sectors of the economy are in great shape. Anyway, that, that's certainly the Republican argument. Uh, don't, 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 don't look at the, uh, the little man, if I can allude to the Wizard of Oz, don't look at that little man behind the curtain. You know, this is everything swell. Uh, and that, that's what you, you say in, you know, when, you're, you're, when you're in politics, you try to put the best spin on it you can. Uh, I'm not at all convinced it's working. If, if I was betting, I would think that Trump will not win the next election, but it's a year away. Lots of things can happen between now and then. But Republicans in Congress are not comfortable with this, but they're stuck. They're stuck with defending Trump because Trump will come out and attack them, as he has with the few others uh, among the Republicans, um, like Justin Amash uh, from Grand Rapids, who basically was, uh, you know, left the party, and some others who've been uh, denied renomination. They're afraid of Trump. They're versus the fact that they are afraid that the Democrats may very well do do better in the next election. There's lots of interim election results we've seen most recently in. I guess Kentucky and Pennsylvania and uh, Louisiana governorship, these aren't necessarily indicative of the next national election by itself, but you put them all together and the Republicans aren't doing that well. How soon would you expect an impeachment trial? And, and I would presume that the closer it is to the next election cycle, the more damaging it is to the Trump re-election campaign. Uh, sort of. I, I suspect the trial will be because there is a Republican majority in the Senate, and I'm sure Mitch McConnell will try to cut it down as much as he can. It's starting to look like this impeachment inquiry, that which will probably lead to, um, it may, may be a very partisan vote, but a, a vote of, um, to recommend impeachment out of the House of Representatives, that probably isn't going to take place till mid-December, which basically means, because uh, they, they, they won't be meeting at all at, toward Christmas, which po- basically means we're talking about January. Now, January is interesting, too, because that gets into uh, we're now leading into the Democratic primaries. And if there is a trial in the Senate, a number of the people who will sit on the jury and be obliged to attend the trial um, uh, will be people um, like uh, like Bernie Sanders and uh, uh, Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren and Klobuchar, who are, in fact, candidates in Iowa and New Hampshire and everywhere else. And it would be much rather be any place other than sitting at the trial. They want to be candidates. They want to be running for nomination. So that's kind of an issue as well. But that's that's not really within their purview. Uh, My hunch is that the the trial, which I expect to follow, will be early in the new year. I'm not sure how long it's going to go. I'm not sure how much impact it has. I think it's probably I think we already know that, in fact, the Republicans aren't going to break with Trump for the most part. Maybe if you will. Mitch Romney, certainly a possibility. And there's a couple of others retiring that may very well feel that they're beyond the wrath of, um, of, of Trump. Uh, but uh, that, in fact, the information of all of this, this is not good news. Not, nothing that's happened in recent weeks makes Trump look better. It all makes him look worse. And the question will be, to what extent is that going to have an impact on independent voters? And seemingly more and more of them are moving toward the uh, the Democratic Party, especially educated people, especially people that live in the suburbs. Uh, those are areas that Republicans historically have generally uh, won, but they're not nearly doing nearly as well. They lost those areas in uh, 2018 in the midterms, and they continue to seem to be losing them in some of these spotty off-off-year elections in some of these other states that have had uh, had votes recently as well. Mr. Kane, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Short Notice. Really appreciate the time today. I'll get back to the TV, thanks. <laughs> Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, tuned in, locked in to today's uh, House impeachment inquiry into Trump's uh, pressure on Ukraine to investigate Democrat Joe Biden and his son while holding uh, up some military aid. It has been a fascinating uh, few weeks, and I'm sure the fascinating tidbits of information that continue to pour out of uh, Washington will continue over the next uh, at least few days, and maybe even when that impeachment trial does happen, uh, that should be a scene to behold. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.